You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Welcome to the Depot Bardos Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today we're going to have a really good show. I, I had this in mind when I was talking with some Muslims on Facebook a while back, and we were talking about Mark, which is thought to be the earliest gospel, whether it is or not, whether that's going to be a question we're discussing today. But there were so many questions that came up, especially about the ending of Mark, and I thought, it would be great to have a scholar come on my show who really knows Mark, who loves Mark, who's a great authority on Mark. And I remember that I read a book that was called Jesus, the Temple and the Coming Son of Man. And the author of that book said Mark was his favorite gospel. And I knew, and I know this guy, he's a very good New Testament scholar. And I thought this is the kind of guy I need to get on my show to talk about Mark. So we got him. So today, my guest is Robert H. Stein. Robert Stein is the Senior Professor of New Testament Interpretation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He is the author of An Introduction to the Parables of Jesus, A Method and Message of Jesus' Teachings, Difficult Passage in New Testament, Luke, New American Commentary, A Basic Guide to Interpreting the Bible, Studying the Synoptic Gospels, Origin and Interpretation, and the Synoptic Problem and Introduction, as well as that book that I mentioned earlier. He has a BA in Biology from Rutgers, a BD from Fertile Theological Seminary, an STM in New Testament from Andover Newton Theological School, and a PhD in New Testament from Princeton Theological Seminary. Dr. Stein, welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. Well, thank you. I appreciate being called and uh, conversing with you and sharing something of the Gospel of Mark. Good, good, good. Now, if my audience doesn't know who you are, can you tell us a little bit about uh, how you got to be doing what you're doing today? Well, it was during my doctoral work that I began to have some courses, and one was a seminar on Mark, and I was so interested in it because it dealt with Mark as an editor and what he contributed to his gospel and how he shaped it to express his theological views. And then I did my doctoral dissertation on that subject and uh, later wrote articles on it and have written articles ever since uh, my graduation from Princeton. And uh, the last two books that I wrote, uh, one was a commentary on Mark and then the book you mentioned, Jesus, uh, the Temple and the Coming of the Son of Man. So I had a lot of interest in, in Mark over the years. Uh, it's my favorite book of the Bible in that sense. You know, that's kind of surprising to hear because usually Mark is kind of neglected by our scholars, and it's my understanding the early church also neglecting Mark because, hey, you know, most of the stuff can be found in Matthew and Luke anyway, so why pay attention to Mark? 
That, that's true. That's true. Uh, uh, on the other hand, uh, I believe Mark was the first gospel written. There's an interest in the seeing the very first written accounts of Jesus that was that were published in the church. Mm-hmm. What is it that you really like about Mark that's different from the other Gospels? Uh, well, in, in one sense, its shortness is uh, is somewhat helpful. That it, uh, it's crisp and precise. Uh, it uh, has a very simple outline, and uh, Mark states right at the beginning his purpose is to tell us about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and uh, that strikes the bell for me. And the other Gospels, of course, do the same, but uh, he does it in, uh, in a forthright way that uh, I appreciate. Yeah, Mark is kind of a guy who just pretty much cuts to the chase, right? Yes, yes. Uh, he has a simple outline. Uh, as one of the early uh, church fathers said, he didn't write these things in order, but uh, he wrote them uh, with, with a theological interest that it's clear and precise. He has he has traditions about Jesus in Galilee, and he shares them at the beginning. Then he has a tradition about Jesus' travel to Jerusalem. Then he has traditions about Jesus in Jerusalem, and he deals with them in that simple way. Uh, he also uh, uses clues as to his main purpose, and uh, when he comes to the uh, high points, he makes it very evident where he addresses the reader and uh, points out certain things about Jesus. And if I'm remembering correctly, Mark is also a writer who uses words like immediately over and over. It's a very yes. fast-paced. Yes. Uh, uh, Mark has never been noted for his great Greek style. Uh, he's kind of abrupt and straightforward and uh, it, it, he uses the expression and immediately, time and time again. And, uh, you find it in a story, it's important to know that and immediately has a temporal significance, uh, like a healing, and immediately he got up and walked, so Jesus' healings were instantaneous and uh, uh, were not prolonged in that sense. On the other hand, uh, many times when he begins a new story, he begins it with an immediately, and he and immediately, and that sense, and immediately, Mark is uh, kind of like uh, uh, our present-day discussion and saying and continuing stories with the, and you know, and you know, and you don't take seriously, and you know, in those conversations, because if they, you didn't know, he wouldn't be telling you uh, what was going to follow. So, and immediately, oh, at the beginning of stories, generally, is simply an introduction to what follows. It shouldn't be pressed theologically, whereas in the middle of the story, it's very important. Now, let's uh, get into a lot of the heart of now, because we've been talking, and we've been saying Mark, 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 over and over, but, I mean, yeah, you spend any time on the Internet talking with non-Christians and even liberal New Testament scholars and non-Christian New Testament scholars, you're going to hear, you know, the Gospels, they're anonymous. They don't have any names attached to them. Mark is just later tradition. It is just a rumor of sorts that Mark really wrote Mark. I mean, is, is that true? Well, 
Well, it's true. The, the titles according to, uh, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, our latest scribal editions. But what Mark, the author of the Gospels never really had a need to identify themselves. For instance, when uh, we'll, we'll just talk about Mark here and use that name, and we'll talk about if Mark is really the John Mark uh, for a little while. But Mark wrote his letter and delivered it to his audience. There was no Roman uh, UPS system that he could mail it to them. Uh, it wasn't that one day uh, members of the church that received this letter found it outside, uh, uh, wrapped at the door, and uh, with nobody's name or so. Mark either brought this gospel to the church that he wrote to, or he had a messenger do that. Uh, he And the messenger knew who he who had written it, and so from the very beginning, the church would have known that uh, this was by Mark. Mm. Yeah, it wasn't the case, for instance, that Mark would just put it in some random guy's hand and say, hey, go take this to a church, and get says, I don't know, just some guy gave it to me. Yeah, that's true. Uh, that, that kind of uh, silliness is, is not done when you write a scroll. Now, scrolls were not... Uh, impossible to purchase and do, but it, it, they were expensive, and uh, uh, when you wrote and spent all the time writing it, you didn't just sort out at, a, at some building and say, I hope somebody reads this. Uh, it was delivered to the uh, church, and uh, they knew, and there was no need for the church at the beginning to put a name to it until all of a sudden they got another gospel. And by E90, uh, a lot of churches had four gospels, so they had to have some way of distinguishing them. You can say, uh, "We're going to read from the Little Guide today," or "We're going to read to the uh, next to the largest one next Sunday," or something like that. So titles were given to them, and uh, and the gospel writers also didn't think that what they wrote was their gospel. Uh, this was the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's interesting that when the later church added titles to them, they didn't do what we normally do and say the Gospel of Matthew, of Mark, of Luke, of John. They wrote the Gospel, which is only one Gospel, the one Gospel, the Gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Not of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you about a few things that you've said on that. First off, we uh, just your commentary on this would be fine. I've uh, interviewed on this show uh, Rodney Reeves and Randy Richards together on the book they wrote with David Cates, who unfortunately couldn't make it for that recording, Rediscovering Paul, where they talked about the expense of letters in that book, that even a letter like Galatians, which was just six chapters long, would cost, I think, 500 bucks, or so it might have even been 700. And that's not even counting delivery charges and such. I mean, Mark's Gospel would have to be in a very, very expensive book to write in, wouldn't it? Well, uh, yes, it, it, it did. Most people, if they wanted to send notes to one another, would get a, a piece of pottery that was broken and scratch something on it. Uh, so it's a, a literary thing. But uh, 
the Society of Jesus and Mark's day uh, were not illiterate. They were rather literate in many ways. So they would be uh, reading and uh, uh, writing. Uh, it was a skill that was advanced. So uh, they, they could write things like this. And this papyrus uh, was kind of mid-sized. Uh, Luke's and Matthew's uh, gospel would have pretty much taken up a uh, all of a 26-foot scroll, which was kind of an average size, and this was not as large as that, although uh, it might have been larger, as we'll talk about later, than the present uh, Gospel of Mark. In E.P. Sanders' book on the historical Jesus, he made a remark about the Gospel virus being anonymous, in that this would actually give their work more authority, much like an anonymous encyclopedia article would today, because if they had their names, it just be said, well, this is my account of what happened, instead of just way of saying, this is what happened. What do you think about that? I think there's, there's an element of that, but I think the gospel writers certainly thought that what they were writing was more important than they being credited for it or be known in it. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, they were known to have written these Gospels. And uh, from the very beginning, uh, the Gospels were associated with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Hmm. Um, I'd also like to ask you, what do you think about the possibility of a Martin Hinger, I believe, popularized the idea that the names of the Gospel writers could have been on the scrolls themselves? Do you think that's plausible? <laughs> uh, I, I think it could have been, but uh, uh, the fact that uh, later scribes added titles to them uh, makes me wonder if uh, that would have been necessary if their name had been associated with it, going to be written on the scroll itself. Mm -hmm. Well, let's uh, look into something else you said about how they were associated with Mark, from the very beginning, the go this gospel was. What mm -hmm. association yeah. do we have? I mean, who who says this was the gospel according to Mark? Okay. Well, when we talk about gospel authorship, there are two areas which we discuss. One is called external evidence, which is evidence that comes outside of the gospel, and then internal evidence, evidence we find in the gospel that suggests John Mark wrote them. External evidence is usually supplied by early church leaders, we call them the early church fathers, who wrote and commented. For instance, we have a man by the name of Papias who wrote about 1890, no later than that, no later than the, the, that century, and he wrote, Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote accurately all that he remembered not indeed in order of the things said or done by the Lord, for he had, heard, he had not heard the Lord, nor had he followed him. Later on, as I said, followed Peter, and made an arrangement of the Lord's oracles, so that Mark did nothing wrong in writing than as he remembered them. Uh, so you have this man, Papias, uh, who was an old man in the 90s, writing that Mark wrote this gospel, and the, 
the probability was he may very well have been alive when the gospel first came out uh, in five or so. So that uh, we have very early evidence from him. We have uh, another very important uh, witness to this called the anti-Marcionite prologue. Marcion was a heretic in the early church, and he uh, made a, a Bible for his sect, which included the Gospel of Luke, and I think it was about ten of Paul's letters, and he edited them and left out things he didn't like. Uh, so the church, when they began to uh, counteract that, they wrote anti-Marcionite prologues, in other words, a prologue in opposition to the heretic her- 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 Marcion, and about 150 to 180, uh, there was this prologue to Mark written. Mark related, who was called Stumpfinger, because for the size of the mark of his body, for the rest of his body, he had fingers that were too short. He was an interpreter of Peter. After Peter's death, the same man wrote the gospel in the regions of Italy. Now, what's interesting about this tradition is the negative comment in it. Uh, now, Mark, uh, in the prologue, is uh, a very positive figure, and he's being commended for writing the gospel. But he's called stump figure. And when you have negative comments like that in tradition, you have to take them seriously, because if you're simply making up things, and you don't make up negative things about you here, or you make up positive things, if you're going to just really make up a tradition, you'd say, you'd say, and he had such beautiful hands because with him he would pen the very word of God or something like that. But something that, that looks like it's awfully good thing, uh, awfully good tradition in that regard. In 170, then, we have uh, Irenaeus talking about uh, Mark being the disciple and interpreter of Peter. We have Clement of Alexandria in 180, talking about Mark having written the gospel and associating with Peter. Origin in 200, Catullian uh, in 200, uh, Eusebius refers to that. He's a great church historian who records much of the early traditions of the early church fathers, and he explicitly refers to Mark, Jerome, the tradition in the early church is early, it's never ambiguous, it's always clear, and it's universal. What I mean by universal is the tradition doesn't just come from one part of the church. It's not just located in Antioch or in Alexandria or in Rome or Corinth or Carthage. In all these places, right. they're all saying Mark is the author. Yeah, it's not just you go to one place and everyone's talking to everyone at one place and saying, well, we all think Mark's the author, and then over here in another part of the empire, there's someone saying, no, we think that uh, Steve is the author, and over here, no, we think Bob is the author. I mean, everywhere you go, everyone's saying Mark. There's no other tradition is there for who wrote this yeah. gospel. And, and another thing to note is that uh, if you look at Later writings about Jesus, later Gospels in the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century, it's, uh, some of these uh, Gospels are heretical, some are orthodox, some are kind of in between. But it's interesting to note the titles. 
You have the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Bartholomew, the infancy of Thomas, the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Barnabas, the Gospel of the Twelve Apostles. And then you have others, too, like the Gospel of Mary and so forth. They even have a Gospel of Judas. Now, you look at these names, they're all apostles. When they create a gospel and they want to give credence to it, they give the name of the apostle to it. On the other hand, that's not done with the gospel of Mark. Uh, it's named after a non-apostle, which seems to be contrary to that kind of thing uh, you would do if you're making a tradition. And the other is that, uh, in some ways, attributing the Gospel of Mark, uh, he's not the greatest hero in the early church either, because he has some reputation of having deserted Paul and Barnabas during the first missionary journey. Although later on, you find him with Paul when he writes Colossians in First Peter, he is with Peter, and in Second Timothy, when Paul tells Timothy to come, he says, bring Mark also, he's become very profitable. So, strong tradition. And the question is, why deny the tradition? It, uh, uh, what good reason do you have to deny who wrote this? Well, since you mentioned the Gospel of Judas, I'm just going to give a quick little plug here, but if anyone's interested, one of the, we've actually interviewed someone on this show twice. In fact, the last time he was on was on our last episode two weeks ago. I skipped for my for the anniversary of my wife and I, but we had Craig Evans on this show, and he was one of the main scholars who looked up the Gospel of Judas. So if anyone's interested in the Gospel of Judas, I recommend the work of Craig Evans at that point. But I like what you said also about Mark not being the best character you'd associate with. Because what I tell people is, look, you, you think if you were making up this Gospel, you'd go with someone who early in church history apparently was known as a mama's boy who ran back home when things got too difficult and that action led to a split between the first two greatest missionaries the church ever had? Yeah, yeah it's a, he doesn't look good. There's no question about it. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, it's pretty evident that Paul thought uh, that, that he kind of just, uh, disqualified himself from the second missionary journey by yeah. his action. Now, let's talk also about some of the internal evidence for Mark and our first ship. I mean, one thing I think that, I've, that we've heard is that uh, there is a whole lot of emphasis on Peter in Mark's gospel, isn't there? There is, and uh, uh, this fits nicely with the tradition that uh, Peter's associated with it. With it. And the, uh, there, too, uh, Peter doesn't always show up uh, as a... Uh, glamorous hero. Uh, mm-hmm. His weaknesses are uh, known, his mistakes, and uh, <clears throat> uh, it well be that uh, Peter shared them with Mark and mm-hmm. uh, was humble enough to admit those. Mm-hmm. And we uh, interviewed Richard Bauckham on here a few months ago talking about a response to Bart Ehrman and talking about his book also, Jesus and the eyewitnesses, and he's made a case that Mark is an inclusio account 
that Peter is the first and the last apostle mentioned, meaning that the, the reader is supposed to read this and get the message, hey, Peter is the source of this. And do you think that's plausible? Well, uh, the, the problem with, with that is uh, the ending of Mark uh, is uncertain. Oh, uh, I just don't. I have some reservations, therefore, with that. Uh, uh, the, now, the interesting thing is, John Mark, as the tradition says, is the author. He would have had all sorts of access to information about Jesus and his life and deeds, because the early church met in his home, according to Mark twelve twelve. To Acts 12, 12 to 17, uh, when Peter uh, come, escapes from prison, he goes to John Mark's home, uh, the, the mother of Mark, uh, to marry the mother of Mark, the account says. And uh, when he went on the first missionary journey, uh, Paul and Barnabas may very well have taken him along to help catechize the new converts because. He may have been more familiar with the gospel traditions than uh, Barnabas or Paul. Mm -hmm. Now, when we're talking about this as well, there's a, this idea that Mark is the shortest gospel, but at the same time we're told, um, I believe, Papias, that Mark left nothing out that Peter told him. But, I mean, hey, you look at Matthew and Luke, there's a, there's a whole lot of other stuff. So why would Papias say Mark left nothing out? Well, uh, yes, I, I I don't think that any gospel writer would have been attributed as having included everything that Jesus said or did. Uh, you know, as John says in his gospel, if he did that, all the books of the world could contain it. So it means that there's nothing left out that's important for the story of uh uh, I mean, they knew that he, he didn't have a uh, birth account in me, uh, but they said that was, a, was important to be included. Mm. Now, something else that a lot of critics say is that, well, why would Mark, Matthew and Luke, though, use the account of Mark and use it so much if Mark himself wasn't an eyewitness of what happened. So I mean, the first thing to ask about is, for my audience, just in case they're not sure, did Matthew and Luke use Mark? And if they did, why would they do that? Well, they agreed with Mark. They, uh, they agreed that when they read Mark that the traditions that they had learned uh, were nicely written in Mark and they could use that. Uh, Luke says that the the gospel traditions had been written before he wrote his gospel, and that uh, they had been written, uh, the, what they wrote was the oral reports of the eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. And then he goes on and he says that he also wrote his in light of what the eyewitnesses reported. So that Luke attributes that after Jesus' death, the gospel traditions were not only re, uh, referred to by the disciples, but controlled by the disciples. They were the uh, 
eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, and they they were the keepers of the tradition. So that Mark would have gotten this, these eyewitnesses reports in his own home, and uh, uh, through later on his contact with Peter, and that when Matthew wrote his gospel, when Luke wrote his wrote theirs, they agreed with Mark so much they used him a great deal. Mm-hmm. It's like uh, why invent the second time? Mm-hmm. Uh, I also like to tell people who bring this up and say, where if Mark is the account of Peter, Peter saw some things that Matthew, for instance, wouldn't see since he was part of the inner circle. So Peter's account would be in, invaluable there. Hmm. Well, that, that's true, and, and Luke, of course, was not an eyewitness, so uh, those traditions would have been his source of information. And that he's investigated these uh, carefully for some time past, he says. Right. Now, let's uh, get to this idea, though, that you said Mark is the first gospel written. Okay, why why should we think Mark was the first one written? I mean, everyone opens up their Bibles and, hey, there's Matthew right there at the start of the New Testament. I mean, when it makes sense to think Matthew was the first written? Uh, there are some that believe that, but most argue for the priority of Mark for a number of reasons. Once, it's easier to understand Matthew and Luke adding materials to Mark such as the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord's Supper, the Beatitudes, things of this nature, then more eliminating those things. And uh, also, it's easier to understand their additions to to Mark uh, uh, and the way they have used Mark easier. For instance, Matthew lots of times agrees with Mark, uh, and Luke doesn't. In other words, maybe Matthew has a story that's in Mark, but Luke doesn't. Uh, then you have sometimes the opposite. Luke sometimes has things in Mark that are not in Matthew. And, and it's easy to think of what's in, the reason Luke doesn't have what Matthew has is he doesn't know Matthew's the gospel, but he knows Mark. And anyway, it's easy to understand Luke having things in his gospel that Matthew hasn't, because he knows Luke, but he doesn't know Matthew. And uh, uh, the synoptic question as to how exactly Matthew, Mark, and Luke are related, uh, the, the great majority believes that Mark was first, and Matthew and Luke uh, used Mark, but didn't know each other. Uh, and in looking at the editions of Matthew, you can see Matthew adds theological things in, to the account, interpretations, and so forth. And when he adds something like that to Mark, Luke never has that. And if Luke does the same, add something... Math never had that. So that easiest explanation is that Mark was the first, and Matthew and Luke used him. They had additional material which they added to Mark, uh, and they didn't know each other, 
And that's why uh, Matthew has things that Luke doesn't have, and Luke has things that, that Matthew's added that he doesn't have. And again, the, it's easier to think of Matthew and Luke adding material to Mark that he doesn't have than to have Mark using Matthew or Luke and eliminating the whole Sermon on the Mount, for instance. Eliminating verse accounts, and things, various parables and acts of Jesus. It's easier with Mark first than with Matthew or Luke first. Mm-hmm. So what do you think would be the relationship with Mark to the Q document then, if it is a document exactly? And before you even answer that, just to, in case my audience is wondering, let us all know what Q is as well. I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't hear you well yeah. um, what, what do you think the relationship is of this to what's known as the Q and in case my audience doesn't know, could you fill them in on what Q is as well? Okay. Uh, uh, Q is a name given to a hypothetical source that Matthew and Luke uh, had that, that was not in Mark. Matthew and Luke both have material in common that's not found in Mark. Where did this come from? Well, the easiest explanation is what you say, well, maybe Matthew used Luke or Luke used Matthew, but there are a number of reasons why that doesn't seem to gel. Because this Q material, and Q is a letter given to this material that Matthew and Luke have that Mark doesn't have. And it was coined in Germany as an abbreviation for Quella, which means source in German. Uh, this Q, this source, Matthew and Luke had in common, uh, is not one that Mark had. And the reason they think it's uh, a source of some sort is because they both have, oh, over 200 to 300 uh, verses that very much alike, but not in Mark. Now, the difference between their use of this is that uh, uh, Luke puts this material in two sections. He has two sections uh, where he has this Q material. Matthew has this in five sections. Uh, Matthew is a very beautiful organization. He, he starts with stories of Jesus, and then he goes to teachings of Jesus, back to stories, to teachings stories, the teaching stories, that he does this five times. And there are five sections of Matthew that contain the teachings of Jesus. Now, whether there is some uh, sense that this is the new Moses giving a five-volume Torah or something like that is debated, uh, can't know that. But that they didn't uh, get it from one another is that the Q material in Matthew and the Q material in Luke are in all three of the different places. And if you, you'd think that if one was using the other, uh, the Q material would occur in the same uh, order as in the life of Jesus, uh, but they don't. Mm-hmm. 
Now, let's talk some, as well, then, about the dating of the gospel. I mean, there are some, some a lot of biblical scholars have placed it sometime after 70 AD, usually because of the, uh, the Olivet Discourse. <clears throat> and But there are also some, or even non-Christians, such as uh, James Crossley and late Maurice Casey, who are saying, no, Mark belongs in the early 40s. In, that, that's a pretty wide distance of about 30 years or so. Where do you place Mark and why? Uh, well, the tradition all associate Mark with Peter's death, either shortly before or shortly after. And uh, that's quite a bit away from uh, 40 or so. Uh, I don't know why the traditions uh, would have it that time if uh, there was a tradition that uh, was going on that Mark was written so much earlier. Um, the other thing is, uh, Mark was a virtual unknown, uh, a young man, uh, when he began his uh, missionary journey in the, the, the late 40s and early 50s uh, with uh, Paul and Barnabas. And uh, to have written the gospel before that looks like uh, it's just too early for someone who we don't know anything about until 10 years or so after that. The other thing is that Matthew and Luke, when they talk about the destruction of Jerusalem uh, in their respective chapters, look like they are writing after it actually had taken place. kind of every now and then uh, crossing a T or dotting an I to fill in uh, uh, what Jesus said in light of what what took place. Uh, Mark looks like he writes before the fall of Jerusalem, but he's given a warning uh, to people in Jerusalem to flee when they see the abomination of desolation taking place. And most probably... That takes place in the 60s. And here again, tradition says that uh, the Christian church in Jerusalem, at warning of the coming of the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans, and they were to flee. Uh, in fact, uh, yeah, there's a little statement where Mark writes, with those who were in Jerusalem flee when they see this abomination take place. Uh, uh, it looks like uh, sometime in the 60s or so, uh, that would that would have been more impressive than in the 40s to say, let him flee immediately from Jerusalem when uh, it doesn't take place for another 25 years or so. Mm-hmm. Now, let's uh, leap into some of what's going on. Or actually, before we get to that, I was just thinking about him. Bart Ehrman, though, has said that that that's a pretty good time gap of maybe 30, 35, or even 40 years. And in his latest book, um, Jesus Before the Gospels, he's talked about how, well, you know, memory, it, it's not always reliable. Sometimes facts get wrong and such. Why should we trust Mark's gospel when it's so much later? Okay. Again, what Mark Herman is saying about passing on the gospel's tradition is not 
what Luke, who was involved in the passing on of tradition, and lived uh, 1,900 years closer to it than Father Ehrman. Now, Luke says, for as much as many have undertaken to plot a narrative of the things among us, as others have written, it seemed good to me for having followed all things closely for some time past, who had an orderly account to you. But then he, he has said, these people wrote as they were delivered, as these traditions were delivered to us by the eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word. So Luke claimed his traditions have come from the eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word, and that others had had that tradition passed on to him. Not only that, Luke believes that the Theophilus who receives this letter should have his faith confirmed by his letter. In other words, he wrote that you, Theophilus, might know the certainty of what you've been taught. If his traditions in the Gospel of Luke are different from the traditions that Theophilus has been taught earlier, that would not be That would be confused, that would be doubt. So his account of the traditions must fit the account that Theophilus has been taught earlier. Now, uh, the other thing is, when Jesus taught, he taught in ways that would be easily memorized. He taught parables. He taught poetry. He used uh, uh, parabolic action. He used exaggeration. He used all sorts of of ways of memorizing this material. And during the missionary journey, uh, during Paul's ministry, the disciples were sent out on a missionary journey by Jesus. Now, when he sent them out, he did not say, well, whatever the Lord, whatever the Holy Spirit tells you, you just say it. They were his disciples, and they went out and spread the teachings that they had heard from Jesus, and they told about the actions that they had seen Jesus do. And in this missionary journey, they would have repeated that time and time again. If you went to one city and gave your uh, teaching of Jesus and uh, acts of Jesus uh, lectures, and you got went to a different city, you didn't use different acts and different teachings. You use the same ones over again. And so the disciples, having a missionary journey, repeating time and time again the teachings of Jesus and the acts of Jesus. They would have been indelibly uh, blocked in their minds. How else do you have to know the parable of the Good Samaritan to be able to tell it? How often do you have to tell the story of Jesus having healed the uh, Jairus' daughter, or the, when he was in uh, 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 a boat in the ocean and uh, a great storm arose, and he healed all this stuff. Uh, the disciples would have known this from the beginning, and they, from the time of the resurrection on, would have been proclaiming it in Jerusalem and in Judea 
and later on even further out. And others like Mark and Luke, um, Mark would have heard them from the eyewitnesses many times, and Luke also would have heard them from eyewitnesses because uh, he spent several years in Jerusalem during Paul's imprisonment there. Mm -hmm. And I think it's safe to say that if we ever start thinking about the idea of uh, the, the telephone game, or Chinese whispers, as it's sometimes called, being the basis for how oral tradition was spread, that's yes. really just wrong entirely, isn't it? Yes. Uh, for instance, if somebody was repeating a tradition uh, and if something went wrong, they would have been told, no, it doesn't go that way. It goes this way, especially if the disciples were present and heard this. And uh, needless to say, I don't think the disciples changed these stories. Uh, they may have added some comments here and there. Uh, may have left something out that maybe wasn't quite as important. But the story was the same from the time of the, um, the missionary uh, travels during uh, Jesus' ministry and after the resurrection as they witnessed these stories again throughout Jerusalem. For the Gentile world. Whenever I give an example of how the stories could be different and yet be, both be true and such, I give you an example if we had, say, Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons come by here, which it's Christmas time for me whenever that happens, and they come in and we start talking and such, that I'll, I'll call some people immediately. One set of people I'd call would be my own parents and tell them all about what happened and such. Then I'll call my in-laws, and my in-laws are much, much more apologetically in tune than my parents are. Those accounts are going to be different because my in-laws will understand a lot of things my own parents don't as well. But both of those accounts will still be true accounts. Surely, surely. Mm -hmm. You've uh, said that uh, Mark would, I mean, the accounts would still be reliable and such, even though they were told years later. But let's uh, push back on that some. We mentioned Bart Ehrman earlier, and in, in so many of his books, Bart Ehrman talks about his kind of Damascus Road experience, where he wrote a paper on Mark II, where Abiaphar is referred to as the high priest. And where if you go back to that time, Abiaphor wasn't the high priest. And Bart Ehrman says he wrote a long, long paper to show that Mark didn't make a mistake. And he got back to his professor, and his professor thought it was an excellent paper. And he just had a comment that maybe Mark just made a mistake. And it was kind of like the floodgates open for Ehrman at that point. And inerrancy started going further and further down here. So what about, did Mark make a mistake? Mm -hmm. no. No, it, what is the alleged mistake again? The mistake is that he talks about when David went into the temple to get the sacred bread during the time of Abiaphor, the high priest. Yes. But yeah. Abiaphor wasn't the high priest. No, but he was, he was not the active high priest, but he was the family... High priest uh, leader whose descendants 
were from him. And it may be that he associates what the sons who became high priests were with what Abiathar, who was their father and uh, had them in his loins or something like that, was high priest. Uh, uh, that, uh... Mm. Go on. Yeah, that, that's, uh, uh... I don't remember exactly how I dealt with that in my commentary. Uh, uh, mm. but I think it might have been something like that. Could we say that maybe it, it's like Abiaphor, since he served with David, would have been a very famous high priest. So, remember when the point of a person before him, Jesus would say, hey, this was in the time of Abiaphor, you know, that guy who became the high priest and such, and the audience would have understood it. Well, uh, you know, we would say that, but it's interesting that the early commentators on that, in the early church fathers, all knew that problem. It never bothered them. Now, it may be that our kind of scientific accuracy is not part of what ancient society was after. They, they would know Abiathar as the high priest and know that he had descendants and so forth. And that was probably enough for them. Uh, but I'm not sure. I, I'd have to look a little more carefully on that and do my research, which I'll do after the program. <laughs> <laughs> there are also some people who think that the account of the death of John the Baptist and Josephus disagrees with that in the account of Mark. What do you think about that? That's true. Mm -hmm. but, uh, uh, now, the, the account in Mark uh, serves, let me just get the back up. In Mark, the account of the John the Baptist's death is not there primarily to tell us about John the Baptist. It provides an interlude between the missionary journey of the disciples. The disciples go out on a missionary journey, and Mark then tells this story, and after that, he tells the missionary, uh, the, the missionary teams coming back according to Jesus. So it gives a nice interlude to imagine a, a time gap between them. Uh, and... Uh, Having, uh, let's see. The, I'm trying to think how I worked that out. And I'm, uh, I remember I wrote out something that I'm not a, that kind of persuaded me that it made sense. But for the life of me, I can't remember it now. You have to excuse me. My memory is not what it used to be. Uh, uh, make an allowance for my age. I, I'm 82, and uh, I'm having a heart attack sometimes remembering some of these things. Uh, uh, it's in my book in some ways. that, uh, uh, But that's not an excuse. I should know it. 
sorry. Okay. Now, whenever objection that's often brought, but even before I get to this one, I think you brought some up. I think it should be discussed some, and that's that it sounds like Mark often does what we call sandwich accounts, doesn't he? Yes. Mm. It's a Mark in style. Mm-hmm. And uh, you many times put one story within another as a uh, literary device. Uh, for instance, uh, in the cleansing of the temple, uh, when, you, when Jesus comes uh, to cleanse the temple, before he gets to the temple, he comes and he curses the fig tree. And then he has the story of he curses the fig tree. The next day he comes back and the disciples see the fig tree uh, cursed. And uh, in between, uh, Jesus comes and cleanses the temple. These cleansing should probably not be the right use. Uh, and what Jesus, what Mark is doing here, Jesus comes to the temple expecting fruit, but, uh, and he doesn't find it. He comes to a fig tree and doesn't find it, and he curses the fig tree. He comes to the temple and doesn't find it, and he then cleanses the temple, which Mark, by his sandwich, indicates this is not a cleansing, a reformation. It is an act of judgment. In his cleansing of the temple, you should interpret this not as an act of reformation so much, but as an act of judgment. And, you, and it provides that. Uh, you have other sandwiches that way. And uh, again, it's a literary style in many ways. And uh, uh, what you sometimes need to do is to say, now, Let's see what comes before and after. How does that relate to this in some way? Uh, the other thing uh, Mark does is uh, he adds the comment in Jesus cursing the fig tree. He says, and they came and they found no fruit, for it was not the time of figs, and he curses it. Well, if he, it was not the time of figs, why does he curse it? Well, I think the statement that it was not the time of things is Mark's clue to us as readers. There's something more in this cleansing than simply uh, a an act of cleansing per se. What he did to the fig tree was a symbolic act of judgment, and you should read the following that is sandwiched in it as an act of judgment, too. So the funding of the temple is more an act of judgment on the temple and a symbolic uh, act as to what's going to happen later on, which he talks about it in chapter 13 with the destruction of the temple and the like. Yeah, so when we get to Mark 6 also, the uh, Ken Bailey, the late Ken Bailey wrote in his book, The Good Shepherd, about this kind of thing going on, that Jesus pretty much sends out his disciples on a sort of miracle tour. They're supposed to go through, heal all the diseases, and talk about the coming of the kingdom. And then right in the middle, he's got the death of John the Baptist, suddenly put him there. Then the disciples 
come back and there's a huge crowd waiting there. And the whole question is, okay, Jesus, we know John the Baptist is dead. We know that you'd be the next one in line. We know your disciples just went on a miracle tour. What are you going to do now? Well, um, it's evident that Jesus has no concern about trying to escape death. He does not want to die prematurely, and that's why he tells the disciples, keep my messiahship under wraps. Don't don't Mm -hmm. tell anyone. Because you do move up an immediate confrontation with uh, Pontius Mm -hmm. Pilate and uh, uh, everything will go awry. So, uh, he is prepared to die, and I think certainly what John the Baptist is the forerunner of, of Jesus and his death is a shadow pointing to the cross, mm-hmm. and the gospel readers know uh, it's not that the cross is going to catch them by surprise, and so when they see what happens to John the Baptist, they realize, well, that's, that was going to happen to Jesus, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they Baby uh, uh. also says that uh, Herod would have known about Jesus as well, and this crowd of 5,000, which is just 5,000 men, not kind of women and children, so there definitely would have been some spies of Herod's in the audience. So it, it, it's also kind of a man asking, okay, Jesus, are you going to take up arms and be the Messiah who's going to lead us in a revolution against Herod? Or what What are you going to do here? And that Jesus' response is really not what we'd expect. Well, it's clear that he makes every attempt to uh, point out that he's not a revolutionary Messiah. He's not doing that. And uh, he must have done that sufficiently that his opponents couldn't charge him in the sense that Herod, Pontius Pilate, the high priest, could do anything about it. Uh, uh, For instance, the spies from uh, Pontius Pilate hear that Jesus is teaching uh, about the kingdom of God. Uh, and he says, well, what is he saying about this kingdom of God that's coming? And he says, well, it, it's kind of like a mustard seed. <laughs> yeah, and what else? Well, that's what I said. And there's nothing in, in Jesus' teaching that can be twisted to bring charges of insurrection against them. For instance, uh, clearly uh, uh, the, the question that is raised by his opponents, is it lawful to pay tribute to Caesar or not? Well, I think he's on the horns of a dilemma. If he says no, then he's advocating insurrection and should be arrested and tried as a revolutionary. But if he says yes, then the people will be angry because they hate her. And tribute is a, uh, is a sign of their servitude. But, but brilliantly, 
he goes through the horns of the of the dilemma and says, "Well, gives to Caesar what belongs to him, and to God what belongs to God." And then his opponents are amazed at him. Says, "Oh, yes." So he, he avoids until the time had come, publicly declaring he is the Messiah of the Christ. Mm-hmm. I'd like to remind everyone right now that you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host. And right now, we've got Robert Stein on, and we're spending this episode talking about the Gospel of Mark. But if you're here next week, we're going to jump across the pond again for some more scholarship over there. And we've got a very good guest coming from over there. Now, if you know anything about the Roman Empire, you know it was full of gods everywhere. It was a rich pantheon of gods. And today, we don't really talk about those gods much because Christianity came and Christianity was the destroyer of the gods. And in fact, destroyer of the gods is the name of the book that we're going to be talking about. And it's about how early Christian Christian distinctiveness existed in the Roman world. What made Christianity distinct from all the other religions that were around at the time? And I've got right here in my hands, in fact, I've already read it, an advanced copy of the book. It's an excellent book that I've already read. And we are going to be interviewing the author, Dr. Larry Hurtado, next week on the Deeper Waters podcast. So if you're interested in hearing about what makes Christianity unique in the Roman pantheon, we'll come back here next week. I hope you will. For now, let's get back to the Gospel of Mark with uh, Robert Stein here. Let me just uh, comment a bit. Okay. Uh, you had Craig Evans on your program. Yeah. You had one of two or three leading evangelical scholars of our day. He's an mm-hmm. outstanding uh, yeah. scholar. Uh, Larry Vitato is another super scholar, especially on this area of history. So uh, your audience will have a real treat next week. Uh, thank you very much. And if anyone else is interested, just look through the podcast feed and such on iTunes on my website. I'm pretty sure you'll find a scholar somewhere on there that you will like. Now, um, let's uh, go to the Gospel of Mark again. Some of you brought up. And um, I'm glad you did, because I, I actually hadn't remembered this at the time. But there is a theory about Mark card, and it was popularized by Ray Day, called the Messianic Secret, that uh, Jesus wasn't accepted Messiah in his lifetime, supposedly, but only later on. And the reason is that, well, that was kept under wraps, and Mark made up this idea of don't tell anyone I'm the Messiah, just to, in order to explain how that came about. I mean, what do you think about the messianic secret idea? Uh, well, this was made uh, famous by William Breda, yeah. and uh, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. There's a perfectly good reason why Jesus did not want publicly to, to be proclaimed as the Messiah. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is immediate confrontation with Rome. Right. Uh, so he acknowledges throughout the book of Mark that he is the Messiah. And uh, the, the demons confess that. And so 
in Mark, his Messiahship is shouted out from the very beginning. In fact, the very first verse, which I want to talk about later, says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Yeah. If I could just leave a, a comment right there at that point. Uh, John Dominic Cross, I understand, has said that if you read that, that would be a way of actually saying, in your face, Caesar. <laughs> well, that sounds more more like a uh, uh, a teenage rebellious kind of Jesus. That he's a mature person. He has his mind made up. His mind is the cross, and he shows his way to the cross with dignity. And as a king, yeah, uh, uh, he. Even when asked, are you the Christ, the Son of God, he replies affirmatively, but with reservations in one sense. He says, you have said so. I'm not going to deny that you have said so, but you have worded the question. uh, At that time, the time is ready. And uh, what's interesting is that... uh, uh, Never does there appear to be any really revolutionary uh, actions by Jesus that would mean uh, I'm going to take up arms against Rome. Right. Uh, well, I take it you'd probably disagree with people like Reza Aslan and Brandon Smith, I mean, was who said that uh, Jesus was a zealot. No, that's absurd. Right. That, 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 that's simply absurd. Uh, uh, his disciples never revolted. His sayings, uh, no zealot would have ever said, give the seeds of the things that are seeds and the God the things that are God. That, right. Uh, that kind of, uh, you, you know, sometimes it's uh, frustrating for uh, Christians to hear theories about Jesus that are so absurd that even the critics later on, after the popularity goes down, said that, no, there's, there's nothing to it. Yeah, even, even Bart Ehrman wrote a book against the Da Vinci Code. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, uh, again, Craig Evans has a, a, yeah. a great recent book on the different theories of Jesus uh, um, and he brilliantly shows that uh, scholars, even, even critical scholars, tend to uh, move away from the uh, the radicals. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, Dominic Crossan had a popular one that uh, Jesus uh, was a Stoic. Yeah. Uh, well, there were no Stoics in, in, in Israel. That that. Uh, uh, so that was not. We just don't know of real stoic uh, views that were being spread that like that. I, I remember reading the book, The Five Views on the Historical Jesus. And when I got to, to uh, John Dominic Cross, and it's about how John was just this radical revolutionary. And Jesus went and he toned his message down. It was pretty much, you know, like the brotherhood of man and things of that sort. And I'm mean with something. You know, the big problem I have with this is this Jesus would never get crucified. 
He no. is not a threat to anyone. Yeah. Um, and, and notice that the Jesus of the Dominic Crossan is a politically correct liberal. Right. And we should, it was Albert Schweitzer who said, we should not make Jesus in our own image. Mm-hmm. And we brought out of the 18th and 19th century Germans primarily, uh, and there were others, French, Italian, and uh, Americans and English, but they mm-hmm. primarily made Jesus in their own image. And uh, some of the critics simply said that this kind of scholarship is looking down at these wells and seeing an image, not recognizing that it was not Jesus, but your own. Mm-hmm. And uh, so much of this is uh, written in that way. Albert Schweitzer's criticism of uh, what was going on in the 19th, 19th century should uh, be, be read again because the same thing is happening with radicals, uh, scholars. Now, you have to realize that a lot of honest liberal scholars that don't buy into that. They have their own problems that way. When we brought the messianic secret, I think also we could say the same thing applies to the deity of Christ in all the Gospels, because I think we'd have a real problem if Jesus went around and just started for fight proclaiming, going to see, hey everyone, I'm God. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. 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 Yeah. Uh, uh, if, if his purpose is theological in the sense of dying for the sins of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, much of the criticism of why didn't he do this, why didn't he do that, becomes pretty evident uh, it would interfere with what he was intending to do. Mm-hmm. I think we can say there are clear instances of the four deity of Christ in Mark. I mean, the main one I think of right now, for instance, is the healing of a paralytic in Mark 2, where he mm-hmm. says, if I, if I have, do this by the finger of God, by the authority of God, and he says, hey, pick up your mat and walk. So now I cannot forgive sins. I can demonstrate that I can forgive sins by healing this paralytic. Right, yeah. And you have others as well. For instance, in the, uh, heal, in the Jesus stilling the storm and the, the uh, on the Sea of Galilee, uh, when the disciples wake him up, he says, speaks to the wind in the waves, and he says, silent, be still. And the storm ceases. Now what's interesting to note is that nowhere in all of ancient literature does any man ever still a storm. There's just no out of that anywhere. Uh, now, they may pray to God, and the storm is still. But in this account, Jesus doesn't pray to God. He speaks to the wind, and it, it becomes calm. It, it ceases, and he speaks to the waves, and it comes calm. He commands the wind and the waves. Only God. In, in the Psalms, it's God who is the master of wind waves and weather, nature. In this account, it's Jesus. 
as the healing of the paralytic, but he does not say, son, your sins have been forgiven by God. He says, their sins are forgiven. I forgive you. And they know that. They say, he's doing that. And no one can forgive sins by God alone. In our Protestant uh, services, many of our churches have a prayer of confession, and where the congregation prays a prayer of confession. And then afterwards, the minister does not say, I forgive you of your sins. He says, be it known that the Bible says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, kind of law and righteousness. Be assured, therefore, that God has heard our prayer and that God has forgiven us of our sins. Thank you. Uh, but Jesus can forgive sin. Only God can. Yes, but Jesus can. Uh, only God can control the wind and the waves, but Jesus can. Mm-hmm. When you were talking about liberal ideas and such are pretty radical, there is definitely one about the Gospel of Mark that needs to be brought up, and that's a Dennis McDonald's theory, which Richard Carrier has been popularizing a lot lately in his Jesus mythicism, and that's the idea that the Gospel of Mark isn't reliable because it's basically a telling of the Homeric epics. What do you think of this? If you look carefully, there's a very great difference. I, we just looked at one. Mm-hmm. And there epics, a storm may be uh, stilled by prayer to the gods, mm-hmm. but that's no analogy to what we have in the Gospels. Mm-hmm. In the Gospels, Jesus stills the storm. Right. So when you, when you look at the details, uh, they're not similar at all. Uh, uh, if you want to look for analogies, don't go to Homer. The biblical writers were all Jewish. Mm-hmm. Their Bible was the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And if you look for analogies, you find them in the Old Testament. You don't find them in the Old Testament. Yeah. It's my understanding that really Dennis McDonald's theory didn't catch on to too many scholars, including non-Christian scholars. Yeah, but, but the shock value uh, coming out at first is uh, so much greater than it deserves. It, uh, it, that's what's frustrating. It, it looks like the press looks for these kinds of things, that anything that would detract from uh, Christianity is uh, promoted and uh, looked upon uh, with great uh, excuse me, great excitement. But then, as things begin to call, the value of the argument begins to be seen as being very weak and rejected. So, and yeah. I think one example of that that's happened in recent times was when Karen King found that fragment of a manuscript that's supposed to mention Jesus having a wife. And all of a sudden, so many skeptics I saw online jumping up and down saying, see, 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 this is it, this is it, Jesus was married. And, you know, thinking, okay, 
you find one fragment from something centuries later and it's immediately reliable, but all the accounts we have from far, far earlier, those are just untrustworthy now? Uh, it, it, uh, it's interesting that on the cross he uh, signs his mother to John, to, uh, woman behold your son, son behold your mother. And he just forgets about his wife. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's silly. It's silly. I, I like what uh, Ben Witherington has said, who has been on the show before, by the way. I'll add that. Uh, he talks about how when uh, Jesus came out of the tomb and Mary Magdalene is there to greet him, that Mary Magdalene never says anything like, Oh, Jesus, you're back. Let's go listen to some James Dobson lectures together and re reignite our marriage and go off and just be happy together. Yes, yes. Mm. Well, you know, it's just like in politics. Uh, some people will believe what they want to believe, and the evidence is, is irrelevant to you. You have an agenda. Uh, there are an awful lot of people with agendas that are Contrary to traditional Christianity, uh, mm. you, you kind of wonder if there is something wrong about having this inner rebellion against Christianity. You always want to find fault with it and uh, mm. find anybody who criticizes it becomes your hero. Mm. Now, I'd like to ask about another idea in Margaret. A lot of critics seem to jump on. When we get to Mark 7:31, it says, Jesus traveled on his way through Tyre and Sidon, eventually returning to the region of the Sea of Galilee. From there, he pressed on to the area of the Ten Cities. Now, critics will look at this and say, well, geez, if you know anything about the geography of the area, you don't go through Tyre and Sidon in order to get to Galilee or the Sea of Galilee. There, there are far better ways to get there. Has Mark made a geographical error that shows he's not very familiar with the geography? Well, there's another error that also comes up in that regard, and then might as well sh share that uh, and with you both at the same time. Uh, in Mark uh, 11 1, we read that Jesus traveled from Jericho. Jericho to Jerusalem, to Bethphage, and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Now, if you draw a line from there, it doesn't make sense. Uh, but the one thing about Mark is when he describes a, a, a journey, he first names the point of departure. And then it was Sidon in the one and Jericho in the other. And then he points out the destination next unto the Sea of Galilee, actually, and unto Jerusalem. And then after that, he posts via the way. And so he goes from Tyre to Sidon, then he goes to the Decapolis and comes finally to the destination of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, that's, that's not a roundabout way, but on the other hand, Jesus being in Tyre, tire, uh, which is never doubted, is not roundabout either. What he did was to leave 
for a time the main area of mission, uh, the Jewish world, and he went uh, partly to rest and uh, to be alone, and he traveled through those Gentile areas and then eventually came to the Sea of Galilee. In the same way, Jesus left Jerusalem, then he went unto the cities of Bethany and Bethphage, uh, Beth, uh, Bethany is on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives, Bethphage is on the top of the Mount of Olives, and then he came west down the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. So it makes perfectly good sense if you understand that the goal is always placed second and the Preposition ace or unto in Greek is placed at that point. So I don't think it's so much a, an error in geography on the part of Mark. I think it's primarily a, a lack of understanding of his literary style in describing how a normal trip went. We begin at point A to point D through points C and D. But, between B and C, excuse me. So, uh, it, uh, in the same way you have when Jesus leaves Jerusalem uh, for Galilee, or the reverse, in Mark 10.1, he leaves Capernaum onto the region of Judea via the area across the Jordan. So he doesn't go to Capernaum, to Judea, to the region across the Jordan. He goes from Capernaum towards the region of Judea, but when he comes to Galilee, he crosses over to the eastern side, so he doesn't become ritually unclean by going through uh, uh, Samaria. Then he comes back again to Beth Samaria, to the Jordan. I, I think uh, I, I don't I don't see see the big problem that's supposed to be here. I think we could also say that Jesus isn't saying he goes through these areas to get to one as if it's a necessity. He's just pretty much giving the, t- the tribal itinerary where what he's doing. Yeah, and again, uh, remember that the destination is mentioned right after the point of departure, and it's always introduced by ace, uh, the uh, Greek preposition for unto. Hmm. I'd like to remind everyone at this point that yes, this is the Deep Overalls podcast. I am Nick Peters. And as I've said before, on our earlier shows, nothing we do here is really free, as it were. Oh, it's free for you to get, and my guests don't charge me to come on. And I, unfortunately, I can't pay them to come on. They come on in their own free time and such, but to do a show like this, I mean, I, I'm really giving of myself. I give a lot of time. I'd like to get better resources sometimes to do the show even better. And, of course, there's all the time reading the books. And, oh, gosh, we all know for me it is just suffering to have to read all these books over and over. (laughs) Oh, oh yeah, that's a great part. Um, Anyway, I would really like your help with this. Now, if you can, please consider a financial donation to Deeper Waters. If you want to do that, you go to our website, deeperwaters.ddns.net. Now, if you go there on the left, on the sidebar, there, there's 
of such things as help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. You click a link in there and it takes you to the ministry of Risen Jesus. You've gone to the right place still. Don't think that we've been hijacked or anything. Risen Jesus is a ministry of Mike and Debbie Lacona and they're my in-laws, so they help with raising the money and such. They have a 501c3, they're tax deductible. And so if you go there and you make your donation, then you contact Allie or I or Mike or Debbie, contact one or all of us or any combination and say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. We will get that donation. We'll get all of it. It will be tax deductible. And if you can become a monthly donor, that works even better. You become the bread and butter of what we do. And honestly, I wish there was some great way I could repay you. But unfortunately, right now, there isn't. Other than my just simply saying thank you. And I'll tell you that if whenever I see that someone's made a donation, they become a monthly donor, it, I, I just get really happy about it. It means a lot to know that this program means so much to you that it's worth investing in. And if uh, you're interested in other ways, you can go to Amazon. I actually have some eBooks there, some that I've co-written, such as Defining Inerrancy or Groundless, where we looked at the, the atheism of Dan Barker, or the book God and Natural Disasters, which I co-wrote with an atheist on the question, do natural disasters disprove God? It was a debate we had back and forth. And if you're looking for still another way to give, one of my friends has this one set up, where guys, I'm not sure if you've noticed this, but women tend to like jewelry. I mean, it, 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 it somehow puts a smile on her face. A lot of times we don't get that, but they do. So if you're wanting credit for a future screw up, which I know you're going to make, or if you want to make up for that past screw up, which I know you've already made, then why not consider getting your lady some jewelry? Or if you're thinking of something even greater, like popping the question, well, jewelry is a is kind of essential for that one. So uh, go to the uh, the link there, and it gets you to Premier Jewelers. My friend Lena Clester runs that. The code word is love. If you need some help getting there, just contact me. Whatever you purchase, twenty five percent of that will go to Deeper Waters. Now, Doctor Stein, do you have some organization or charity that you'd like to see people donate to? Well, yes. Uh, I taught my last career, last years at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in, uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, and I believe they're doing a wonderful job in training men and women for ministry. And uh, I think if you're interested in contributing to Christian higher education, the Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky is an excellent choice. Would that be SBTS? SBTS, right. Okay. So, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And oh, I'd also like to let you all know that if you can't contribute financially, 
get in touch with me and let me know you like the show. I really appreciate hearing that. And please consider going on iTunes and leaving a positive review of the Deeper Waters podcast. I check regularly and I just delight in seeing those positive, positive reviews. So please consider doing that. Now, when we're talking about the Gospel of Mark and we're doing that with Dr. Robert Stein today, Oh, if, there are a couple things that I'd like to emphasize that hasn't come up yet. Okay. And uh, we talked a lot about the authorship of, of Mark. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I'd like to deal with the question of why is the issue of authorship uh, such a battleground and so important? Okay. Uh, surprisingly, it doesn't involve the meaning of the text of Mark. Uh, I mean, whoever the author of Mark uh, and what he meant when he wrote his gospel, well, it's contained in the text of Mark. The gospel of Mark means what the author meant by the text before us. Now, if someone other than Mark wrote the gospel, it still means what he wrote by the text we have before us. Uh, we have no other means of knowing what the author of the text meant than the text we have before us. Therefore, uh, the question of why is authorship so important is not because of the meaning of the text. Uh, I think uh, scholars can agree, no matter what their theological persuasion, as to what the meaning of the text is on Mark and have a, a good conversation. The issue, however, involves the significance that we attribute to the meaning of the text. If we believe John Mark was the author, we attribute greater credence and confidence and the truthfulness and the accuracy of what he wrote, since he knew the apostles was a companion of Paul and Barnabas, according to the tradition, a close companion of the apostle Peter. Uh, such a close relationship between the author of Mark and the apostles, however, is not the possibility for critical scholarship. Uh, the reason for this is the accounts in Mark are full of miracles. According to critical scholarships, miracles simply cannot happen. Thus, you have only two real possibilities uh, as a critical scholar. Either the author of Mark is an outright deceiver who created these fictional miracle stories, or the author is someone distant from the eyewitnesses and who heard these stories from uh, people who were not eyewitnesses and were unreliable storytellers who made up these fictional accounts of miracles. Uh, uh, the latter is the more common explanation of critical scholarship, because most scholars acknowledge that the author of Mark and the other gospel writers truly believed what they were writing was historically true. They were, they were not outright deceivers. Uh, thus, evangelicals are inclined to accept the strong traditions view of John Mark, concerning the second Gospels, whereas critical scholars, on the other hand, are even more inclined to deny the traditional authorship of John Mark as the author in order to support their view of the non-supernatural nature of the life of Jesus. So it's not just an an academic debate here. It has real significance. Uh, Is John Mark the John Mark of the Gospels? Uh, and uh, of Acts, then we have greater confidence in what he says. But if you don't believe in uh, uh, the, the 
possibility of miracles, then you have to deny his part in this. And if anyone's wanting some information on miracles, again, we'll point you to an earlier show. The first year we did this podcast, we had Craig Keener come on talking about his yeah. book, Miracles. Craig is, a, is a, again, a superb uh, scholar in the New Testament. Uh, uh, Craig and uh, his writings, I'm amazing how much he is able to write and the quality of them. And then Craig Evans, you've uh, had good people on your show, yes. I'm convinced Craig Keener's secret identity is for Flash. Now, anyway, let's uh, return to the, to Mark again, because one thing that definitely has to be touched on is the ending of Mark. Because Mark, this one is such an oddity, because you're reading this book and you mean you're expecting how it's going to end. And then you get to Mark 16, and you go through, and it says, The women went out quickly, and when they were outside the tomb, they ran away, trembling and astonished. Along the way, they didn't stop to say anything to anyone because they were too afraid. Game over. That's it. No appearances of Jesus. Nothing. Does Mark even have a resurrection narrative? Why would he end it that way? Did he? Well... Uh, this is by far the biggest textual problem we have. Uh, uh, almost everyone agrees that the two endings, the shorter ending, as it's called, and the longer ending of Mark, are not written by Mark himself. Uh, the shorter en- ending most people may not know of, but let me just read it. And all that had been commanded them, they told briefly to those around Peter. And afterwards, Jesus himself sent out through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. Now that shorter ending is found in only four unsealed manuscripts. Uh, Unsealed are Greek manuscripts that use capital letters. And uh, after about 1,000 or so, the primary uh, Greek script was minuscules, which were small letters, and they, of course, after a while, he realized writing capital letters is a lot more difficult than writing small uh, letters. But four unsealed manuscripts date from the 7th to 9th centuries, and its non-marking grammar and style is very apparent. Uh, There are 34 words that are found in, uh, excuse me, the there are 34 words found in that short uh, ending, and nine of them are not found in Mark 1, 1 to 16, 8. It's an uh, unusual amount of unmarked words. And the expression, the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation, reflects the much later date than 80, 65, or 70. No one takes the shorter ending very seriously. The longer ending, one which uh, in the King James Bible is found uh, without any note to it, it just goes from 16.1 to 20. Uh, That longer ending uh, has better textual support, but it's not found in the very best two Greek manuscripts we have. Those are 
Codex Sinaiticus. Uh, and the abbreviation for that is the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph. Uh, and the other one is Codex Vaticanus, described by capital B. Now, early manuscripts also that have this ending frequently have an asterisk or some other marking at the beginning of that section indicating that the scribes uh, uh, didn't believe that this was really part of Mark. And various early church fathers who uh, write uh, and refer to Mark, uh, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, show no knowledge at all of this ending. And, uh, when we get to Eusebius, the great early church historian, and Jerome, who is the author of the uh, most famous early church translation, the Latin Vulgate, they both state that almost every Greek manuscript they knew lacked this ending. As to the ending itself, it's decidedly unmarking in style, vocabulary, theological content when you compare it to 1 1 to 16 8. Now, uh, I pointed it out, and you've asked uh, about my relationship with the Gospel of Mark. Uh, since my seminary days, uh, when I did a dissertation on Mark, uh, I've written quite a bit on uh, Mark in articles and in commentary. And uh, I, I have a fair, fairly good feeling of knowing Mark and his style and vocabulary. Uh, now, I'm not in any way pretending I'm a great uh, scholar in the knowing vocabulary and so forth, but uh, after, well, 50 years of studying Mark, uh, I get, have a feel for his vocabulary and style. And when I leave Mark 1, 1 to 16, 16.8, excuse me, and I come to 9 to 20, this is someone I've never known before. I don't know this man. I don't know his style and so forth. So it clearly, uh, and, and just about everybody would agree uh, that this is not uh, a market style. Probably uh, it was composed sometime in the second century. Now, the question is, what do you do with it? Uh, especially since most uh, of our English-speaking world knows it from the King James Version, where there's no separation between the two uh, passages. Uh, when Mark 16, 1 to 8, goes right into 9 through 20. Uh, now, the English the uh, English Standard Bible uh, separates 16, 9 to 20 with a note between uh, verse 8 and 9 uh, and states some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 9 to 20. Then it adds this ending, and then there's a, a note, a footnote acknowledging the unmarked nature of this passage and warning that it should be used with caution. Uh, but a living translation uh, is pretty much the same, but it includes also the shorter ending and the longer ending after Mark 6 8 with these titles, longer ending, shorter. And uh, they have a footnote saying, nearly all scholars agree that Mark did not write the shorter and longer endings. And 
there, I think it also has a comment saying that uh, some scholars believe that the uh, ending uh, was torn off and lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, uh, if you lose part of the manuscripts, the, uh, the most likely place is to lose the, the end of it, not the middle of it. Uh, my own preference is uh, not to do that with the two endings, simply end at verse 8, and then at the end of verse 8, you could have a footnote including two, uh, the two endings and the uh, reasons why these are not being considered as uh, part of Mark. Mm-hmm. I I just prefer when I wrote my commentary they, they read, gave me a, a question when I handed it in and I said uh, why didn't you do any commentary on my, the 20 in chapter 16 and I said uh, I don't believe Mark wrote it and I therefore don't want to have people think that uh, even if it's found in a footnote that it should be thought of as the Word of God and inspired in any way. And the best way is to simply omit that. I like how you also talk about how uh, this was known to the early church. They knew about the long ending of Mark, even in the second and third centuries and such, because so many times I have uh, internet skeptics and such come up to me talking about problems in the text of the Bible and their point to Mark 16 of this, no one really knew about this, but now we know about this, and I just want to say congratulations, you're 18 centuries behind the times. Uh, well, uh, you have to remember, we're, we're talking about English translations. Uh, I'm not so sure that the Vulgate has those verses in it. Uh, 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 but if it did, it probably was a protest under protest from uh, Jerome. There have been attempts to say that uh, March 16-8 is a perfectly good ending and we shouldn't be surprised. Uh, well, the last two words, uh, for they were afraid, uh, in Greek are epibumpogar. And it's most unusual, and we do not have any clear evidence of any Greek book ever ending with a gar. Uh, uh, attempts to have scholars today legitimatize the ending and give an interpretation of it that is meaningful. Uh, It's strange because they they all are interpretations that sound 20 and 21st century existentialist. Uh, It doesn't sound at all like merely church. Uh, And the happiness with uh, modern translators who one would see 168, uh, I should say, as the original ending, and they're happy with it. Certainly goes contrary to all the early church scribes who added an ending to it. They didn't think it was a, a normal ending. They thought something radically wrong with it. Uh, one of the biggest arguments, I think, that the uh, gospel didn't end at eight is that there are two prophecies of Jesus in which he speaks of returning after his resurrection and meeting the disciples in Galilee. 
One is in 1428, right after uh, the uh, Last Supper. He says to his disciples, uh, I, uh, I will go to you and be with you in Galilee. Uh, and then in 167, this is the next to the last verse. In other words, the verse just before the Ethelbuntogar, the for they were afraid. He said, the angel says to the to the women, "Now go and tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus is going before you into Jerusalem. There you will find him." It's it sets us up for Jesus meeting the disciples in Galilee. And if the original ending was 16.8, that prophecy is not fulfilled. It'd be the only prophecy not fulfilled that Jesus said, other than the second coming of, of Jesus. The prophecies on Jerusalem's destruction and things like that, they, all of those have been fulfilled. And therefore, I have real problems with the uh, the alleged ending in uh, making any sense at all. I don't believe that the gospel ended that way. I don't believe uh, uh, the uh, endings that we find of any credence, and I don't think we should give credence to them or give them uh, uh, more respect than any other later scribal uh, edition. But is the Gar ending, though, Totally unheard of, maybe not in books, but in literature. We did, or I did interview a couple of years ago, Daniel Wallace on the show, and he did have one of his students do some research to find other Greek writings of the time that did end in Gar, and I, I don't think he definitively came down that side. He did say it is possible still, though. But it's possible, and there are some sentences that have ended that way, mm-hmm. but no known clear example of any book ever ending that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, would you agree, though, that still, even with the prophecies that you've given, such as when Jesus is arrested in the garden and such, that there is still a resurrection account in Mark, though, that you can still know that Jesus rose from the dead? Oh, yeah. 16-1-8 is a mm-hmm. resurrection. The women come, they the empty tomb, and the, the angelic messages, he is not here, he is risen as he told you. So that's a powerful resurrection. Well, there are some people though, that will look at the accounts and say, well, geez, look, in Mark, you don't have any appearances. In Matthew, you start having appearances. In Luke, you have Jesus coming in eating with his disciples and being touched. And then in John, you have even grander appearances and such. I mean, this is just an evolution. The accounts that they're getting more and more legendary. Well, uh, I don't necessarily see any uh, uh, major evolution in Matthew and Luke, at least. Uh, mm-hmm. John... The ending of John is a little uh, different. Of course, he had a resurrection in chapter uh, 20, but then in 21 you have a, a lengthy account. Uh, uh, and they all refer to Jesus being, uh, well, no, Luke doesn't think so. But Matthew and uh, uh, John refer to 
uh, the appearance of Jesus in Galilee in that way. Mm-hmm. And something I always like to point out to these critics is if you're talking about legendary accounts, the first account we have of appearances of Jesus comes in the Pauline tradition, and that account can be dated just a few years after, and that's probably the, the, the greatest account because you have more appearances to more people there than anywhere else. If you're going embarrassing, Mark is actually kind of toning it down, if that's the case. Yeah, you have to remember that there are all sorts of resurrection accounts referred to in the Acts through Revelation, and many of those accounts were earlier than the Gospels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. One final thing I want to comment on. Okay. And that is the key verse for understanding Mark. Okay. The gospel as a whole and the individual accounts found there. Uh, When the gospel was was written, Mark had before him, in a sense of his mind, maybe some written accounts, the material. In 1, 2 to 16, 8. What he didn't have was an introduction. Mark 1, 1, which reads, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, and the Son of God is there, and there's some debate about that, but that's not important for us. This means that when the story was written, he had to add and create something as an introduction. And he created as an introduction to his gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the key for understanding the whole book. That means that the story of Jesus healing the paralytic is not about a paralytic. The spilling of the storm is not about the disciples' experience of a terrible storm on the Sea of Galilee. And the raising of Jairus' daughter is not about a 12-year-old girl. Mark 1, 1 indicates that these stories are rather about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He wants us to understand these as being about Jesus, and we should seek to understand the, these passages and all the passages of the gospel about Jesus Christ. Uh, uh, the story of the alien paralytic is about Jesus, who has power to heal a paralytic and forgive him his sins. And his readers, uh, Mark wants uh, to reflect on the, the story and the words, who can forgive sins but God alone? The sealing of the storm is also uh, meant for us to reflect on the statement of the disciples at the end, who is this? that even the wind and sea will be in voice. And when we read an account in Mark, we should stop at the end of the story and ask the question, what is Mark wanting us to know about Jesus Christ in this story? We spend a lot of time on all sorts of things uh, about how storms can arise in the Sea of Galilee, of uh, funeral practices involved in uh, the 
raising of Jairus' daughter. We have all sorts of things we have to uh, And they're interesting and they're, they're somewhat helpful. But the main thing we have to ask is, what does this tell us about Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Christological in nature. And uh, I would ask the readers to pay attention now. The stories not about the disciples, not about Herod, it's not about John the Baptist, it's not about uh, the, the Pharisees and scribes, it's about Jesus. And what does this story tell us about Jesus Christ? And then I guess you could say if Mark 1 1 is the most important verse in the Gospel, that we could say that the most important question comes in Mark 8. It's asked for disciples, but we could just say it's asked to us, and that's, who do you say that I am? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the Christological training point, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the main way of trying to outline Mark is either by geography, uh, 1 to 9, uh, Galilee, 10 uh, to, to Jerusalem, 11 to 16, Jerusalem, or by the turning point in Mark 8 when he, he, just, he asks, who do men say that I am? And then he asks, who do you say that I am? When, he, when they confess that he's the Christ, he just tells them, don't tell anyone. And he begins at that point, at that point only, to tell of his death. And from that time on, he began to show up for it his future death. So that probably is the, uh, the dynamic of the story as far as the turning point, yes. So, ultimately, we shouldn't make the uh, the mistake that the church fathers often sadly made of uh, discounting Mark, that Mark very still has a whole lot to teach us today, doesn't it? Oh, it's, yes, and it's a wonderful gospel. But, uh, uh, Brevity is uh, sometimes helpful. It concentrates the main thoughts about not so much his teaching, although there's some of that, but about who he is, what he did, and what it means to follow him. Mm-hmm. And we can still look, you know, we've discussed a lot of objections and reasons for discount Mark, but at the end of the day, I think we can just look and say that Mark is Sarah pretty reliable account of Jesus and Jesus as Messiah and resurrected Lord. Would you agree with that? Oh, yes. And uh, another thing to remember is that he is writing to an audience that's Christian. He doesn't have to explain titles like Jesus, Son of God, and so forth. They know that. He's writing to an audience that's familiar with the story. And he emphasizes it and brings it together Partly, perhaps, because the uh, death of the eyewitnesses was removing uh, some of the most uh, powerful testimonies of Jesus, and uh, they did not want uh, to have these lost. And uh, some tradition says that that's precisely why Mark was written after Peter's death, uh, and they asked him to preserve these things. Now, there's some conflict here. Some say that 
he wrote this before Peter died, and that Peter even read this. So uh, we don't know, but it, it's it, it's around the time of Peter's death and the beginning of the uh, uh, dying off of the eyewitnesses, ministers of the word, and probably an urge to write these things down, uh, preserve them, became stronger and stronger as the eyewitnesses uh, died off. On the other hand, you you know, if you had the choice of hearing, uh, say, me read the Gospel of Mark and uh, of going down to uh, uh, the stadium and hear Peter share his experiences with Jesus, I doubt there would be many coming to hear me. The eyewitnesses were there. We would want that. But after that, uh, the text takes the place of the uh, living voice and becoming the written voice mm. of the life. Yeah, Dr. Stein, unfortunately we're coming to the close of our show. Do you have a blog, a website, an email, a way that people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more? Sure, if they want to contact me about something. Uh, my my email is big, B-I-G, red, the color, R-E-D, neb, N-E-B, bigredneb at AOL.com. Okay. Yeah, And uh, do you have any uh, final thoughts you'd like to leave today for the Deeper Waters audience? Well, uh, I think the importance of knowing that the Gospel of Mark is primarily about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that uh, Mark has, uh, I believe, in the inspiration of God, given us a reliable and accurate account of that, uh, that we shouldn't read into it our standards of how to tell distances of travel, but uh, accept what the biblical author does in regard to his style and so forth. Uh, and that I, I trust that uh, some of this will help the reader come to know the Jesus of Mark and love him better. Well, Dr. Stein, I'd like to thank you for taking your time to be with us today, and hopefully we'll see you back here again sometime. Well, happy to, and I appreciate the honor of being able to share. Now, I can remind everyone that next week, Larry Hurtado is coming on, talking about his book, Destroyer of the Gods. For now, I am Nick Peters, and I am signing off.